0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Marie Anthrop-Skov, is the author of Punk Art History. Marie, thanks for being here with me today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Could we start by having you talk a little bit about why you wanted to write this book, how this book on punk art history came about?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in Copenhagen. I moved to Berlin when I was 19. And when I uh, was in Berlin, I started studying art history. And um, I've always had a fascination with punk. I love punk fashion, punk music ever since I was a teenager. And while I was studying art history in Berlin at the Freie Universität, I noticed how many overlaps and connections and links there are between art history and the punk culture that I knew. And so I started looking into it and it turned out that there were a lot of sort of coffee table books and uh, exhibition overviews that were really beautiful and that looked at some of these connections that, but none of them really went into depth with uh, looking exactly how these connections were put together. So that's what I wrote my PhD about. And then I uh, finished my PhD actually back in 2018. And after that, I made an exhibition. I was working at the museum. I made an exhibition about Claudia Skoda and sort of the West Berlin underground of the 70s and 80s, so music, fashion, art. Uh, That was just a great opportunity for me. And while I was doing that, I just completely put the PhD aside, didn't work anything on it. And after the exhibition was finished, I took it back up and I completely rewrote it. I killed my darlings. I fostered some new darlings. And, um, and yeah, that's how the book came about. And I I actually think it was kind of good for the book that I put it aside for a while. Um, So yeah, that's how it came.
1: So can you, t- often when people think about punk initially, right, they think, and you mentioned this, about the UK and the US. But you kind of broaden that and talk about some really fascinating and really cool um, places throughout. So can you talk a little bit about your choices for what you cho- what you talked about and why you chose to sort of broaden that space? Yes, for sure. Um,
0: I mean... The U.S. as well as the U.K. are obviously really, really important for punk culture. New York and London, in particular, but not only. But due to that, there has also been a lot of focus on U.S. and U.K. Um, and um, punk spread all over the world. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a member of the Punk Scholars Network that started out in the U.K. and meanwhile, now ten years in. We're in Indonesia, and in Canada, Australia, South America. So punk really had a global impact. And um, I wanted to write about, you know, get a little bit outside of that U.S.-U.K. access that has been covered so much, especially if you look at what has been published in English. Um, and also write about what I know, because as i said i am a dane and i've been living in berlin for over 20 years so those were both scenes that i really knew and i knew the cultural background the historical the art historical background and the language um, and um so so i have berlin in there i have copenhagen uh, artists from those two cities and then i have Amsterdam, uh, where i have never lived but uh, which was a really interesting case also tying in with the other scenes um, and which again is also not that unfamiliar to me that I really felt like I was in a position to write about it without getting everything wrong. Yeah.
1: Um, and another thing, like you talked about how there's coffee table books, but this, I, what I, one thing that I really loved about this was all the imagery that you were able to bring in and really talk about because, and you've mentioned this often people will mention the art, But they really won't show the art. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about some of and we can get in more depth and, you know, but some of those choices and and some of the artists you were able to sort of bring in and um, really talk about and show in the book, because it's full of images and photos of all this art.
0: Yeah I w- I am so grateful to the artists who let me use their artwork in the book I mean that was that was just a really really uh, amazing thing for me to be able to include all of that and I I do think exactly like you say I think it's it's very important that you don't also that you don't write a history and then the artwork just comes to be sort of an illustration of that history so you already have sort of a, of a narrative and the images are reduced to just like proving your point. But the other way around that you start out with the artwork and then move from within uh, that artwork and start by analyzing that. You know, I interviewed a lot of these artists and look at their archives and um at really just looked at the art, analyzed the art, and going from from inside of that and then coming up with the topic or the bigger narrative of what is it we're talking about in, in these particular cases. So that was something that was really important to me, and uh, and I was really happy that I got to, to use all of the image material also to make some of these connections throughout art history. So looking back, um, not only to data and surrealism, which is also something that has been made, A point that has been made before, especially data, but also some of the art movements that are closer in time actually to punk. So in the 50s, the 60s, if you look at fluxes or if you look at pop art um, or performance art, some of these connections were, it was good to get the image material on that as well.
1: Yeah, I love that you kind of talked about, like you were saying, you kind of start out with sort of situating punk and really looking at some of those Earlier precursors, right? Those more recent precursors to, to sort of the punk movement and where punk took from besides those that we already sort of know about. So, can you talk just a little bit about that? Um, because you have that and you situate that in um, some of your chapters. Yeah,
0: I, it's it's really sort of a red thread throughout the book. That's something that I come back to, of course, ex- especially the two first chapters. Uh, I use a lot of time and a lot of uh, paper on that and just sort of describing these connections, especially because at first when you say punk, people think music and they think fashion and maybe a lifestyle. And it was important for me to show how punk is really, um, it's a way of life in many cases. It's a way of expressing yourself. It's a stance. um, And that goes in all different kinds of um, ways, ways of expressing yourself. So um, this is something that is particular to me about punk, that it is not only um, a music uh, direction or only fashion or only an art movement. I would never claim that. It really is sort of... Uh, an an attitude, if you will. So it was important for me to show the different kinds of ways. You're not talking about one aesthetic that is like, okay, this is the punk aesthetic and you can always recognize it. It can look in very many, many different ways. And I work with a lot of different media because the artists were working with Super 8 and with performance and with all of these different, uh, um, yeah, uh, genres and media. Um, And I do think that, like I said, this connection between data that has been brought up so often is 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 really valid and it and it makes completely sense. But artists coming out of the fifties and sixties are of course also looking at what had happened just before. And that is, for example, pop art. So Andy Warhol plays a huge role. Um, of course, his collaboration with Velvet Underground, but also his films, and um, this way of playing on the of bringing sort of low art into the institution. There are so many things about this, uh, his way of doing things that meant a lot to, to, to these artists. Then there's something like Fluxus, and uh, that is, uh, to me, especially interesting, because this is something that I talked to several of the artists about, that this is a starting point. Fluxus is actually a starting point for many, because that's what comes directly before. And Fluxus is, of course, a kind of neo-data movement. So you see Fluxus artists... um, doing some of the things that were done in the 20s but in a new way and um, playing with, you know, poetry, of course, and um, with um, with with music, with the destruction of, of playing instruments and these kinds of things. And that's something that punk really relates to but at the same time criticizes, also because it comes just before. So there is, uh, from many of the punk artists that I spoke to and also what I have read, uh, that this criticism of uh some of the neo data and Fluxus movements as being sort of the gesture of avant-garde without the radical politics that some of the original avant-garde in this case also surrealism and data had so uh, a little bit like uh criticizing them for being the paper tigers of the art revolution um and so this is uh, this is one of the connections that i thought was really interesting and that hasn't really been looked into so much.
1: Another thing that I really um, appreciated that when you were sort of looking and talking about art is that you, Made sure that poetry was part of that art, right? And that art history, because I think often people are like, well, uh, music is poetry and it all gets lumped together. And so you talked about that, especially I think when you were talking about Amsterdam and the importance of. So can you talk a bit about um, because there's the visual art, but also that sort of written in the poetry as this artistic expression that is different than music and how that is incorporated in your art history?
0: Yes, I think that poetry is extremely important to punk. Um, And as you say, of course, um, song texts are also related to poetry and it's also a way of using language. All over, language is super important in punk. Language is propaganda, it's sloganeering, it's a way of... uh, Controlling your own life—it's a way of uh, resistance. If you look at an artist like Genesis P. Orridge, then she is really using language as a weapon, almost. And so that can be one way in which language is used. And poetry, um, to in the punk movement, was often also about. Um, expressing on the one hand something aggressive but it can also be something uh, soothing and something that helps through fantasy for example there is one danish uh, punk poet Mikkel strunge with whom i write a lot about and um, he has these really fantastic uh, fantasy uh, descriptions of almost sort of utopian uh, children's uh, cl- children playing in the street, and and those being the punks, and also it, as as you just mentioned in Amsterdam, the poetry is very important. Also, often linked then through scenes, you'll have these you know DIY m- magazines, um, just photocopies that bring together visual art with poetry. Um, and imagery, um, so it's all put together in, in 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 that sort of media. So I think that is really something that is important. And because I'm going outside of the U.S. UK axis, then that is also something where you can see how punk changes in the different countries or in each different cultural sphere so poetry plays a different role in amsterdam than it does in copenhagen than it would in hamburg or in london in each of these cities or scenes have sort of their own tradition and uh, their own cultural sphere and of course also a a certain language so um, it's different to write something in danish or in um, dutch or in German um, than it than it is in English or even UK English or, or or American English so so that changes also how you go about the language yeah
1: so you have you know you sort of talk about that you talk about this sort of insider art versus outsider art like another thing I think that is important that you um, sort of interrogate that often comes up is that idea that punk came out of art school, right? And you sort of push against that in some ways. And so can you talk about that, too? Because um, that seems to be another thread and something that you really look at in depth that is often not looked at. Sure. I, I mean, I do think that art schools played a
0: huge role, um, which has also just been shown, you know, how, how many uh, of the musicians and of the artists went to art school. Um, but I do think that it's, um, there. there are just, one of the things that are really important about punk is that you do not try to reduce it to being one type of punk. Punk is super diverse and it changes really, really, uh, a lot, just within a, the span of very few years. So you have street punk and you have art school punk and they are mixed up and that's what makes it interesting. You know, that's exactly what I like about punk is that you you bring some of these things together that are sometimes too often not together. Uh, and um, I do think that, you know, if, if you look at... Punk UK seventy six or in Amsterdam nineteen eighty, then it has already changed so much. So there there are things that are the same, um, but there are also just many things that really change a lot. And I think that this uh, this art school thing is also it, it's also a place to be. You know, at this point in time, um, it it is not as elite uh As it is unfortunately in many cases today where where you know it's it's much more expensive to go there and and it's less open so for many young people, it was also just almost like a hangout like somewhere you could go and you could uh where you could meet the right people and you it wasn't necessarily about studying art all the time, but you met the right crowd for what you wanted to do.
1: So another thing, so you sort of go through, you know, you said you talk about some of these images, but one um, chapter that I thought was really interesting and that just the image, just even if just you look at the imagery, was the one on um, Children Run Riot. And so can you talk a little bit about um, that sort of, I think you subtitled it, The Art of the Infantile, and some of that because there's these pictures of baby, a, a, a young child or a young toddler, I guess, dressed up as Sid Vicious from a Super 8, right? Can you talk a little bit about that, that chapter and what's going on? Yeah, that
0: so the so the chapter uh, on infantile art but, um let me start perhaps with the with the Super 8 video. So the so uh, the Super 8 film. It's a film made by die tödliche Doris, which is one of the artist groups uh, that I that I spent quite a lot of time on in the book, and they made um not even a year after Sid Vicious had died, a Super Eight movie where he is played by a two-year-old toddler. So the movie really uh Reaccounts the last months of Sid Vicious' uh, life. So um, reenacting sort of scenes from the great rock and roll swindle where he's walking the streets of Paris and, you know, um, make, making a fuss, and um, the scene in Chelsea Hotel, so um, drinking and taking drugs and getting into a fight with Nancy Spungen, who was then played by a seven-year-old girl, uh, and they're fighting, and so, th- so it, it reen- they're reenacting um, the scene of uh, how Sid Vicious um, probably or allegedly killed Nancy Spongeon in, in that hotel, and at the end, it sort of looks like he's f- fixing himself and then he falls asleep or dies. Uh, from a, from an overdose, and it's a really really um, gritty movie to watch. It's it's kind of difficult to watch because you really do have the impression of this two year old boy who's being told what to do and is in the camera, followed by a camera all of the time, and it it almost also because at this point in time, you know, Super Eight movies are really family movies. That's what they're used for most of the time. It's it's an amateur um, format. Uh, and so, so it's kind of heartbreaking, and at the same time, of course, you do get that sort of break that you have that all of the time. It's completely absurd and surreal because it's obviously, you know, a little boy. It's it's the son of the drummer in the band, by the way. So, um, and one of the things that this uh, film does is that it really plays into that idea of punks as hurt children that are in in the end actually innocent and that are actually that that the idea of you know the child as someone who gets um who who is who is in a way pure and um it is the evil of society uh, and the Uh, the grown-up world that sort of ruins the child. So that is is kind of an ideal, if you will, in punk. On the other hand, you do also have the other side of the infantile, which is like the childish is just the free, just even in a Freudian sense of like the childish is the id. Doing whatever it wants, you know, uh, not taking care of anybody but itself, and and just following every every impulse, even evil ones. So, so in that sense, you know, the childish is really the free, and the free is, of course, a, a, perhaps one of the most important things that that punk is about is about freedom. So that that's one aspect of that chapter. Um, and I have other, like a collage as well by Kum Transmissions, where they have the art of the infantile, um, so the childish art, and of course the childish in, in art and the infantile is also bound together with dilettantism uh, and with the de-skilled, and this is something that is important in punk culture overall, you know, the Famous uh, three chords, you know. We can't play, but we do it anyway. Uh, we can't make art, but we do it anyway. We, you know, we. It's so. It's about. It's an empowering thing, and it's also dis- distancing yourself from the slick, over intellectualized, uh, elitist kind of art that was to many. Um, d- before in the 70s and a little bit like you could see in in the music as well. It's like, no, we don't want to play perfectly. And we don't want to be the rock star gods with thousands of people cheering. We want to be on the same level as our audience. We want to do this together. The audience and the band are the same ones and the same with the art. It's Like we can, there's this sort of the infantile and the dilettante are mixed together in this sense also going away from work so that, you know, that it's it's away from professionalism and in that sense also away from money and away from the art market that is so um, all-consuming. You know, every the, the art market and the art world tends to sort of um, swallow every revolution, every art revolution that there has been. So this is also sort of a way of drawing back from that and avoiding that. Uh, get, falling into that trap because you, um, as we just talk about um, art schools and many of the artists that we're talking about in in the book, they knew exactly what happened to Dadaists or surrealists or Cobra or many of the other sort of art revolutionary groups that eventually got eaten up by the art system. So so all of these things are bound together in in this chapter, and that's sort of the yeah, the, the connections that I try to pull together in that chapter.
1: Well, another thing that sort of comes... Um throughout and when we think about punk is right sort of pushing against kind of the status quo and morality and and and, or these ideas of morality or these ideas of right and so you do have a a, you know chapters on uh sex on kind of pain and presence so can you talk a little bit too about how you see you know what's going on with in those chapters or in the book about how punk is sort of pushing against some of those ideas and challenging what we think about (laughs) Yeah,
0: for sure. So, I mean, I think sex is actually the longest chapter in the book. (laughs) Um, And I mean, sex and sexuality is super important in punk. And um, I think, uh, you know, if you look at fashion, if you look at music, if you look at art, that is one of the main uh, topics. It's one of the areas where punk is really trying to push against the status quo. Um, I think I have a Vivian Westwood quote in there saying, you know, uh, punk was all about, you know, changing things. And, you know, uh, there was so much about so much hypocrisy about sex and sexuality in Britain at the time. So it was just obvious that that was what we had to go at. At the same time, it's interesting because you see how punk was pushing against both that sort of um, heteronormative uh, family structure and all of these conservative ideas, and of course pushing against that, but at the same time also pushing against this hippie free love um, idea, and saying, you know, that didn't work out either; it was a lie, uh, and really, in many incidents, making fun of that as well. So saying, you know, um, that that was um, that was just us. As uh, bad as the heteronormative, it was just as much about power structure in the end. It was just as much. Um, it was. It wasn't free at all. So uh, this sort of, um, yeah, pushing like like you said, like pushing against the boundaries, and also very much about discovering hypocrisy and showing that, and sort of breaking it open, um, and using provocation to do that, and. In, in within uh, the art, I think that is also something that is very much about, you know, if you look at an artist like Fanny Tutti of Kuhn Transmission, she is very aware of course of how women are shown throughout history, the role that they get to play, not often not as the artist, but only as through a male gaze. And she really, really goes against that. And you know, turns it all around and does her own imagery as a sex object, but keeping the power to herself. Um, so that is something. She's one of the the main artists to do that. Um, but also, I, I you know, I do have a, a sub chapter about punk feminism. That is uh, about you. You see how? Uh, if I'm, so, the book is really like late seventies to early nineteen eighties. I started around. 76 and ended around 1984 and in this period of time you the most of the women that I talk to are not um, calling themselves feminists some are you have somebody like Linda Sterling for example or um, um, Nina Hagen who called themselves feminist at, at that time but many I just think no they don't want to be called that because they have the second wave feminism, just before, and they wanna rebel against that and some of the shortcomings they see in that. But at the same time, they are, of course, completely standing on the shoulders of the second wave and you know, agreeing with everything that the women before them were fighting for. But they do wanna um, you know, walk in high heels or put on a corset or a leopard print or all of these things and, and lipstick and dance through the revolution. Um, so, so in that way, there there has been, and I'm not the first to point this out, but you can look at the, some of these women as in between sort of second wave and the third wave that comes in the 90s, and they're moving in between those things. And one of the reasons why they don't want to be called feminists is also just because they don't want to be labeled. They don't want to be put into any box, not that box either. Um, but if you look at the lives they're living, then that is very feminist indeed. So that is also a, a big part of that chapter. Another part of that chapter is also, again, going back through art history and looking especially at surrealism. So surrealism is really important in the, in the sex chapter and in the pain chapter. Um, looking at, you know, how uh, sex can be a vehicle for revolution, how sex can be a re- vehicle for revolution, especially for women. Uh, talking about female pleasure um, and um, playing of course with gender roles which is something that is super important in in punk and where um, you where you also have all of these uh, connections to Makita uh and to all of these discussions around um, yeah, sexuality and, uh,
1: and 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 subversive and being subversive. Um, and so you kind of then you sort of end with this idea of dy- and you title the chapter dystopian with a twist. <laughs> so can you kind of talk about um, that kind of like you said that you looked at this from the you know, late 70s into the mid 80s. So you chose this specific time frame to in in punk and that sort of first iteration of punk. So can you kind of talk about then how you kind of wrap this up and, and, and where you see it going?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, So I do think that there's a there's a shift happening um, when we come into the early 80s. Of course, already through the time period that I'm talking about, shifts are happening. I mean, Crass wrote Punk is Dead in like 1978. I think it's brought out in 79. But it's like it really within a few years, people are already saying Punk is Dead. And of course, we all know that punk is not dead. But I do think, you know, there's a great quote by Brian Cogan where he says, well, punk is a virus. Punk mutates. And I think that is very true. And it mutates. It keeps being something different. Um, So, of course, punk doesn't end 1984. But we do have a completely new political situation uh, there's a new situation on the art market because I talk so much about art, where you you get a lot of money all of a sudden. Um, the same goes for inner cities where you've had sort of a free space for some years because a lot of the run down um, buildings were freestanding and you could move into them and occupy them, and you and that that gets that is different in the 80s. Um, and you have, yeah, just with the same within music. You, you, it's really, you see punk sort of splintering into these different factions. So, so you get post-punk and you get new wave, you get um, industrial, really, which really is a, a movement that tries to take some of the more radical aspects of punk and bring them into a new direction, um, maybe losing some of the more playful elements um, also because um, because of the, the way that that the, the feeling that that punk is um, you know uh, being crushed uh, by by mainstream on the one hand on the other hand also just by people taking drugs and losing their lives in, and uh, so in in different ways the scene splinters and it becomes a different situation um and then I kind of you know 1984 is also sort of this Orwellian year that is kind of a fixation in punk as well. It keeps popping up in so many artworks and songs. So for that reason as well, it just felt like, you know, a, a, a good point to end as well. Um, and I I do think that, you know, now we're so many years later and, uh, you know, looking back, I I feel like there are elements to punk and especially to that early time of punk that have become relevant again. I think I write about that in, in that last chapter as well, this sort of, this idea of no future. I think if you talk to teenagers today, young people today, some will say, you know, due to climate catastrophe and um, that you that there is a new feeling of no future. And of course, it, in an inverted way, in a different way, you have Fridays for Future, you have Extinction Rebellion, you have the last generation. You have all of these movements that are some in different ways, trying to cope with a new kind of no future outlook through activism, through hedonism, through humor, through uh, creating sort of an outsider society, but also through disruption and laying your finger in the wound, and you know all these different kinds of um, ways of. T- Target, you know, targeting a problem like that for young people. And I think that um, that that is one of the reasons why why punk is still so relevant, especially that that very early uh, time of punk that that I'm writing about
1: in the book. So we talked about like, you have, I have to ask, uh, you have like, like we said, tons of like a lot of different sort of artwork in here and pieces. Um, Is there any in particular that you really um, loved or want to highlight, whether it's something you loved or something that people don't know a lot about? Like what in here really is your, (laughs) not to say favorite, but something, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, obviously, I I love all of my babies equally,
0: <laughs> so I you know, I don't have a favorite chapter and I don't have a favorite artwork, uh, but I but of course there are sort of a few discoveries that you know that maybe I didn't um, that I didn't know before. Um, there's uh, one by a Danish artist called Nina Steen Knussen, um, which really sort of stayed with me for a long time. Also after I had talked to her, um, she made a necklace out of needles uh, back in 1978. Uh, and it was needles pointing inward and outwards. And then she was, would wear it. And I interviewed her and she was like, that was really how I felt. I felt like, um, like living, um dangerously like hurting myself but also that if somebody would touch me they would get hurt um i thought that was a really interesting artwork and i thought it was diff- it was interesting also that that she made it as a jewelry uh, as as this this crossover into fashion and art and and body art so that's one that really stayed with me uh i also think that um some of Peter Christofferson's photographies are really fantastic um, that I didn't know as much before. Um, Cozy Funny Tutti's work is really something that I keep thinking about that just sort of pops up in really many different situations. Um, so so there, are, there are really a lot of them uh, that, um, yeah, that I, I keep thinking about and, and that were great discoveries uh, for me while working on the book.
1: Mhm. Yes. I mean it's really like it's for me it was hard because I wanted to sort of go down a rabbit hole and like find, kind of find some of these and I loved there was at some point um a group that had recorded but on a little like plastic uh recording and you're like you can get them for like 600 pounds or sometimes it's like I was like this is kind of amazing idea like I look at zines and that kind of thing but I loved um thinking of sort of these other art and then yes I was like um these and some of them like super eights that were made to not be like mass distribution and so some of it was like it'd be really great. (laughs) <laughs> be able to get a hold of this or see this so
0: yeah for, for sure. sure yeah that, that, and the the doll recording recordings I really love those as well it, it it's such, it's such brilliant. and it's one of the things that I really liked about writing the book and talking to all of these different artists and working with the material all over was just that the, the humor there are so many great humorous moments um that, that you that you really yeah that you really laugh out loud and you really just sort of that are sort of um, y- you know always um, that are, yeah in that sense dystopian with a twist so so it's political it's radical it's critical but at the same time you know it it, it, it there there are a lot of good jokes in there
1: <laughs> you my kind of final question the book is out now right um so is there either so last promo is there something your work something new you're working on is there anything are you working on any sort of exhibition with this like what is it that you want people to know about well um that i
0: might do an exhibition but I, I'm not, uh, but I can't say so much about it right now. So, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, you're just going to have to stay tuned for that one. But I would love to make it into an exhibition. I think... I, I don't think that you can make the book one-to-one exactly like the book is into an exhibition, but I do think that um, that there would be uh, space for another punk art exhibition. There have been some really great ones uh, in, in the last years, um, but I do think that uh, one that really goes into some of these topics and uh, could, could work well in an exhibition, and I do think, I hope, that a lot of people would be interested in seeing that, yeah. Okay.
1: So, again, thank you so much, Marie, for talking with me for New Books Network. Again, um, Marie Antuskov, who wrote Punk Art History. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much.